Support for today's show comes from Squarespace because they make it easier than ever to be online. You will have a website that lets you launch your passion project, showcase your work, sell products, or just be you on the internet where everything happens now because it's the future. You'll have a beautiful website with 24-7 support from their award-winning team. So head to squarespace.com cracked for a free trial of that great situation. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. With all the stresses of life, it can be easy to lose perspective on what really matters. But Heineken believes that life is about being with friends and opening yourself to new experiences, because when you live spontaneously and embrace the unexpected, it's a chance to create new stories and connections. You just have to be open to it. So, enjoy a refreshingly cold, full-bodied Heineken lager today. With its deep golden color, light fruity aroma, mild bitter taste, and a crisp, clean finish. Cheers! Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt. I am also known as Schmitty the Clam. I am also known as Schmitty the Champ. And I am also, also getting you straight to today's episode with one of my favorite guests and probably one of yours. Jason Pargin writes for Cracked and the New York Times bestseller list as David Wong. He's also written a new Cracked column called The Creepiest True Story I've Ever Heard. I'm not being goofy with the title. There's a question mark after the true. I'm trying to perform it, you know, give you give you the full experience. So the creepiest true story I've ever heard. We will, of course, footnote that. And I am being fun with how I say that word. Point is, our topic is the surprising origins of monsters. Uh, and it's specific to our brains and our world. There's so much meat here. We've got mythology, psychology, my favorite subject, history, and terrifying true stories. So get ready for a spooky time. Please sit back or sit staring out your window in case the one kind of alien or one kind of dragon comes. It'll, it'll make sense when you hear the show. And here's that show with Jason Pargin. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. And we're talking today about the surprising cultural and psychological origins of monsters. And uh, and as we prep this, you, you put together a really fascinating thought experiment to kind of get us in. Yes, because this is my favorite subject, uh, as people know. And I don't just mean horror stuff because I write horror as my second job. I mean the evolutionary origins of monsters, the fact that the human brain is built to believe in monsters and to react to them in a certain way. And as you alluded to, I have this thought experiment that I give to people. I could, you know, hook you up to a device that measures like your emotional and physical reaction to things. So first scenario, let's say you sit down as is your morning routine with your newspaper to catch up on the news as everyone does these days with your, yeah. your spouse is making breakfast. <laughs> and so you read in the newspaper, first scenario, you read that 50 people have died in a church in a small town that you've never heard of due to, let's say, a tornado or an accidental fire, something like that. I think that our monitors of your physical reaction to that news would be a right around a three and that it's very sad. It's clearly a tragedy. 50 people are dead for no reason. 
But I think you would also completely forget about it by, say, lunchtime. Right, like a three out of ten. And you said either either a tornado, which is, I guess we'd call it an act of God. I think that is the official insurance phrasing. Or some kind of faulty wiring, other just human error. Yeah, basically, there's nobody to blame is the point. Like, like yeah. It's just something that happened. But the people are still dead. Scenario two. Same small town, same church. Same 50 people are dead. This time... It's because a group of ISIS terrorists came and riddled the building with machine gun fire and threw grenades and all that. Same number of dead, but I think the emotional reaction to that would be somewhere around an eight. And in fact, I think that would dominate your thoughts for the rest of the day, maybe the rest of the week. And I think that every church nationwide would go on lockdown and start changing policies, doing things to like watch out for the ISIS threat, particularly now with, right. I think, like you imagine the reaction from President Trump, because this is a Trump episode, like this would be <laughs> the dominant talking point from now until the election, right? Like, yeah. you know, he would be making a visit to the scene. Again, same deaths. The danger to the average person is actually lower because statistically far more people are killed by tornadoes or structure fires by caused by faulty wiring than are killed by ISIS. But suddenly the reaction is much stronger just because you have someone to blame. Scenario three and the final one. The same 50 people are killed in the same small town church because a tentacled creature emerged from a portal in space-time and entered our dimension and tore those people to shreds on camera before disappearing back into the rift into its own universe. I'm thinking that would probably register about a 10. And in fact, if that monster came out and only killed one person... Or even just mildly injured five people. I think that would hit you harder than even the ISIS attack. And in fact, I think that would actually dominate the news cycle for a really long time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Even though the danger level is the lowest of the three. That has literally never happened before. <laughs> it may literally never happen again. The odds of it happening to you are microscopic. But yet the emotional gut level impact it would have is off the charts compared to the other two scenarios. These scenarios in your reaction escalate according to not the danger to you, not the logical danger to you and your family, but according to how monstrous the danger is, whether or not yeah, there is wow. intention behind the damage and how strange and outlandish the cause of it is. That is why we need monsters, and that's what we're going to dig into, because that's not a logical reaction. There's no reason why, in terms of how you would change your everyday life and why one should impact you more than the other, but there's no question that it does. Yeah, it's true. It becomes more monstrous and, and even less human in a way, like that first one where it could just be faulty wiring. It's caused by an electrician, and then the terrorists are caused by the enemy, and then the tentacle monster is is the least human of all. Uh, right, and this is one reason why we react so much stronger to a mass shooting 
that has something weird about it. Like, for instance, if a guy dressed up in a strange costume and shot people in a movie theater versus if you follow news on Twitter and you see that there's word of a mass shooting and everyone is about ready to jump on it as like, oh, my gosh, it's another one. But then there's a follow up story that's like, oh, never mind. It was a gang shooting in Miami. Uh It was a couple. It's same. Oh, same number of dead. Don't worry. This is not one of those like dramatic shootings. This is just a routine, a, a gang, a gang shooting, a drive by or whatever. And there was like, Ooh, whew, oh, okay. Thank, thank God. It's a little bit like that. It, it, there's a bias toward the dramatic, the monstrous, the inexplicable. Whereas we feel like, well, you know, gang members just shoot each other. You know, that just happens. And we sort of kind of like write it off. But it really is a fundamental flaw in the way we process news and events and danger. As we move along, you'll start to see how this impacts everything in terms of how we look at politics, everything. This extra thing, this might be slightly tangential, but it's not even just a gun thing. Like there have been the recent phenomenon of like van attacks or like someone driving a vehicle as a weapon, you know, and then immediately after I feel like the first thing reporters try to figure out is, was it on purpose or not? Even though it's the exact same vehicular damage and death, you know, it's, it's, we're, we're super curious about that motive. That's a great example because you probably, if you hang around on Twitter, you probably saw that same curve of van runs into crowd at whatever market marketplace or event. And then everyone's waiting to hear, was this ISIS or was this an elderly person who, yeah, had a stroke behind the wheel of their van. And again, it's the exact same damage, same photos, same tragedy. But the difference between will the president go on TV and condemn like the idea of the president saying, look, the elderly should not be allowed to rent vehicles of this <laughs> size. Like they should be required. If you have health problems that, that make it, you know, so that you probably shouldn't be driving, you should be tested again. Like the level of outrage just isn't there, even though it's the exact same damage. And in fact, you know, again, as an example earlier, it could be far more common. It, you know, if, yeah. if, if for instance, if it was just a drunk driving accident, well, well, gosh, the number of deaths from drunk driving as compared to van attacks from terror is ludicrous, the difference. But that's boring. And the human brain seeks novelty. We, we <laughs> want to be killed by something weird. And we want to, we don't want to worry about the boring stuff like heart disease or alcoholism or just failing brakes because moving vans, they don't inspect them off enough or whatever. Like, no, it's, we need a story. Yeah. That phrase, we want to be killed by something weird. That explains like every movie ever made, right? Like action movies, horror movies, uh, disaster movies, just everything that basically explains the hook. This is a subject we've come back to a few times on the site. One of my favorite examples of like the, evolutionary origin of monsters and how like weirdly specific they are as always we'll link this in our footnotes but we had an article pointing out that dragons are universal across cultures that never contacted each other that dragons as far as like studying the history of their appearance they independently turn up in australia greece scotland italy japan korea many other cultures no one knows why. 
we have yeah. a theory that we cite an anthropologist named David E. Jones, who says that you can come out of the womb afraid of certain things because we have naturally selected for that fear because obviously the people who were not afraid of those things did not have a chance to reproduce. They got eaten. So his theory was that dragons fit an archetype of like a lot of things that, you know, primates would be afraid of large predators, things that can fly like birds of prey, things that have scales like snakes and pythons. All of these humans spread out across the globe, all these cultures that developed independently because of how the human brain is built. We independently built this mental image of this creature that turns up in the Bible, that turns up in all sorts of mythology. And there are a lot of monster myths like that. But I think that to me is like almost the weirdest example because dragons are, they're all like strangely similar to each other, like yeah, the different and, versions of them, I mean. Yeah, like we're, we're going to footnote a Smithsonian article that where David E. Jones, the anthropologist's theory about this is. And also he brings up a few other like possible theories. One of them is maybe Nile crocodiles used to have a much, much wider range. And I don't know, that all seems much less likely than just there's something about humans and human psychology that makes us think that's going to be a thing. I don't think there's like a couple of really well-traveled crocodiles. Uh, well, right. And, you know, it, you see it in other animals, too, because one of the theories about why cats hiss as a way to like scare off, you know, and they're not the only ones who do it, but that they are mimicking snakes, and that every uh -huh. like every mammal is afraid of snakes, even ones that are from parts of the world where they never would have seen a snake. It doesn't matter. It's sort of the same thing with like, why do nails on a chalkboard cause the hairs to stand up on, on the back of your neck? You can't say, well, maybe when I was a child, like I had a mean teacher who did that and then they smacked me. No, you were born afraid of that sound. You were born to hate that sound. And there's all sorts of theories that I've heard over time that it sounds like a predator or it sounds like, like claws on, on the floor of a cave. It doesn't matter. The idea is that you, we have naturally selected for that fear because the ones who had that fear survived. And so it sounds like voodoo because it's like, well, how would a memory of something happen to your ancestor get passed down genetically over generations? But no one argues that it, that it happens. All creatures are born with fears. It's just that everyone accepts that. Like I think most, you know, creatures are born like they're they're afraid of fire from the first time they see fire. They don't have to be taught. But it's one thing to say you're naturally born afraid of certain things. It's another thing to say you're naturally born afraid of dragons. Right. Even though you've ne they don't exist. Like that's the thing. There is no such thing as a dragon. Like it's so this is what I find fascinating and I don't think people realize how universal these are. Like I think when they like another example is from the site that's from a column I wrote, but I mentioned that lots and lots of cultures have some version of the werewolf. And yeah, that's fascinating. It would be easy to say, well, of course, there have been many, many movies about werewolves. There have been many stories about them. They've got, they've, they've swept all around the world, but there are cave drawings going back like 15,000 years that depict humans transforming into animals. 
and the turning back. Like that myth predates the written word. And what you find is, is that what the werewolf transforms into, it's not a wolf, it's wolves in Europe because wolf attacks used to be common, but basically they transform into whatever is like the most dangerous animal in the area. In Central America, they have were jaguars, and in Central Asia, they have were bears, and, and so on. In that article, my premise was that going back to the scenario at the beginning, like having someone to blame for the tragedy seems really important to us. And then having something that is as alien from us as possible to blame is also important. It feels like you had these people living in an area when wolf attacks were extremely common, were a real danger, and that that wasn't enough. They had a need to point to the weird perhaps hairiest guy in the village and say, <laughs> I saw him turn into a wolf. He's the one that ate our children because you can't get revenge on a wolf. Even though I realized there was a, a Liam Neeson movie in which that occurred <laughs> right? where it's like, you can identify the one wolf and then go after it. Like that's just not a thing. And you can't really get mad at the wolf. So there was a need to put a human face on that wolf attack and to punish someone for it. Because werewolves, accused werewolves were absolutely put on trial and killed in Europe, the same as witches, the same as accused vampires. Like, this was a thing that has persisted in some parts of the world, persists until today. Do you pick Mm -hmm. out the weird person and say, hey, they are the one who, they turn into an animal and then they turn into a bear and attack the village, or they turn into a tiger and attack the village. That, to me, is extremely important to understand, that... Yes, we all have dragons, but even more universal, we all have scapegoats. Maybe there's an element, too, of, like, speaking of how there are certain psychological things that we all just have, like, it feels so good to resolve fear, even just on the garden variety level of, like, you thought you'd get a parking ticket, you get back to your car, you didn't. Hooray, you know? It seems like it'd be so easy for so many cultures to say, I have resolved the fear of wolf attacks by killing this uh <laughs> i like the, i like that it's the hairiest guy in the village he's probably just like shaving his back like here we go again like another one of these you say that it's resolving fear but a lot of what we call justice like in society it's only that it's just yeah. being able to get even somehow you can call it revenge you can call it whatever but it's clearly something that Because in order to make a tribe function, you have to have that. You have to have the ability to resolve injustices and and to settle scores and make things right. But then when you're the victim of something that you can't get justice on, that you cannot put the wolf on trial, that you cannot put the tornado on trial, we still try. And this is where when you open up a Bible you know, these storms are judgments from God. And to this day, you'll hear televangelists saying that, that that the hurricane hit that city because that city is a center of depravity because they want to believe that even this completely random 
convergence of forces in nature of wind and air pressure. No, this was also justice. This was God trying to balance the books for something we must have done wrong. We want that to be true about the world, but man, it turns ugly really fast. And that, and that werewolf example you bring up is so incisive for it too, because not only is it it's across cultures and ecosystems, but it's narratively the same. Like you say, there are those werewolves in Europe, where jaguars in Central America, where bears in Central Asia. But the narrative is still the moon or a particular thing turns this person into the thing we're all afraid of. The full moon thing is something that goes back, you know, because the, the whole idea that the moon drives people mad and, you know, the word lunar and the word lunatic, that's where that comes from. Like they're trying to tie in mental illness to, again, that this is you being possessed by something. This is you being corrupted by something. Your, your animal nature has taken over again, turning yeah. it into some sort of a moral judgment. Yeah, I think I think that's what I thought werewolf stories were on a metaphorical level was some kind of just pre the science of psychology attempt to explain or capture or turn into a metaphor mental illness it's it's not a good metaphor no one should use it but before the relatively recent advances in brain science i felt like that was what cultures tried to do sure and it turns it into something that can be understood and controlled whereas like even now now that we kind of know the origins of it we certainly don't understand it we certainly can't cure it very well but it had to have felt good to like, this is our explanation. They got bitten by a wolf and now uh, the only way to fix it is to kill them. That takes us into, which is obviously the most famous version of this. And here with the witches, this is where you realize the politics of it come into play. Because this is where we will start to talk about how useful the existence of monsters is to those in power. So the origins of witches, again, predates the written word as far as I can tell. Also universal. You know, they have witch hunts today in parts of Africa. This is not something that has gone away. But the myth of the witch or the hag or the crone, you know, it's it's always usually like an, an older woman But it usually combines two things, a need to scapegoat disease outbreaks or crop failures, which is those were always the things witches were accused of doing, that they had cursed the crops or that they had cursed like like some infection that was spreading. This was a curse put on them by the local witch. And then the second thing is the fact that elderly, childless women are just easy targets. If you want to scapegoat somebody because they have no males in their life to defend them. They don't have a son. They don't have a husband. They don't have that person who can be there to stand up for them. So if you want to put the blame on somebody, why not like that blame kind of just rolls downhill to the most defenseless person, right? And that is true in all times and all places. Yeah, it was all, It was also probably easy to tag on the evidence of they frowned at somebody funny one time because kind of everybody frowns at everybody once in a while, you know? It was pre- it was probably very easy uh, fake evidence to put together. Yeah, and you've like you've done entire videos about the Salem witch trials, right? Yeah, I did uh we were doing a YouTube series at one point called Hilarious Helmet History, and I did not wear a helmet, I wore a witch hat. But yeah, the Salem trials are 
uh, something that we have that um, American cultural perception of, and there's been Arthur Miller plays about them, but they also were sort of one footnote within a much, much larger history of, in particular, North America and Europe, just constant witch trials in the 1500s into the late 1600s. And almost all of them were a result of basically something terrible happened socially uh, in that era, often a war that killed a lot of people. And then afterward, whether because of trauma or wanting to blame somebody or just needing some kind of societal pick-me-up, a witch trial will happen. We've never quite been through one of the wars that they went through at that time. So I guess we maybe can't quite understand how they found that cathartic, even though they shouldn't have. Like witches take the form of basically whatever weird group they want to blame now. Like I grew up in the 80s during the satanic panic in America. That was a witch hunt. And it was a literal witch hunt. It was the exact same libel, only, you know, in this case, they tended to target like goth kids, people that were like overtly not Christian. So whether they they practice some sort of of witchcraft or or Wicca or, you know, the, the kids that practiced the form of Satanism that was made popular by like Ozzy Osbourne, where it's like very theatrical. It's just a style of dress. You know, it's an aesthetic. But then the exact same lies were told about them, which is the child sacrifice stuff that they are practicing ceremonies to, you know, they're all bound up in some sort of weird sex thing. There were stories of the naked people gathering in a field and then having an orgy over the blood of a baby they had just slain. So you look at when that was occurring, that was during the cold war or specifically it was post Vietnam. Was that a case where the real thing they needed to be worried about, which was, you know, this long grinding, unsatisfying war, what they probably sensed at the time was like an an empire that was in decay, that they just needed an exotic, exciting enemy to take on because it is fun. It's fun in the sense that you're not having to wrestle with the morality of it. If there were people who are literally slaughtering infants so they can have an orgy in their blood and their guts, everyone would agree that's bad and they should be stopped. Yeah. Likewise, if there were actual older women in town who were casting curses to cause people to die of disease, that also everyone would agree is bad. It's the existence of those things we disagree with, but you have a case where suddenly the morality of the situation is crystal clear. They are absolute evil. They literally worship evil. After all, Satan is the embodiment of evil. Satan, you know, openly is about, you know, death and, and victimization and violence and all of the bad things of society. And these people are worshiping that. So, all of the nagging doubts we have, all of the everyday concerns, the doubts after Vietnam that maybe we're not the good guys, right? Suddenly right. all that's gone because you have a crystal clear black and white morality you can fight. You have a monster you can kill. 
And that's why monsters to this day are great in movies because you don't have to feel bad about fighting a monster. It's a monster. It's got a. It's a. It's a snarling, slimy thing. Like it's no. It's it's got to die. Yeah, and I guess we completely then uh, afterward detach it from the conflict or the worry that kind of sparked us to to team up on that monster. Like with the most famous European witch trials, a lot of them were in the mid 1600s, and they came on the heels of the Thirty Years' War, which is. Not a war I think I was taught about in school. I think I just caught up with it later because it's very old and boring. But also it's not boring because it was a massive war that killed about 8 million people in Europe. Uh, There were parts of Central Europe where half the population died in the fighting. And it was all basically a fight over whether Catholics or Protestants would be in charge of most things in Europe. And... That was probably something that people said, hey, we uh, that's not worth like fighting an entire war about. But they distracted themselves with all these uh, witch hunts and witch trials uh, that happened, especially in Germany, all over the place. And then with the Salem trials, they came on the heels of what was called King William's War, which was a North American theater of what was called the Nine Years' War, which was a fight over whether the king of France owned too much of Europe and so other countries pushed back on him. Refugees from that fighting uh, in present-day Maine then ended up in Massachusetts, and some of their daughters became key Salem witch trial accusers because people were just wound up after a very uh, bad war that they didn't want to think about. But now today we just have Arthur Miller's The Crucible. We don't have like all that context or, or all the psychology that leads to it. We'd like to thank Squarespace for helping us bring you this episode of the show. Isn't that fun? You know what else would be fun? Having a website. Do you have one yet? You probably don't. If you don't have one, you should get one. If you do have one, get one. Isn't it simple? It's very easy to work out what you should do here. Get a website with Squarespace because they make it easier than ever to do every step of it. They have a bunch of templates that were created by world-class designers, and also you can customize them however you want without any crazy coding where you're like a 90s hacker. Those guys are some movie villains, especially you can tell from their ponytails and their European aspect. Anyway, building a website has never been easier. Do it with Squarespace. Also, they have an e-commerce functionality that lets you sell stuff and also track the whole business very easily. They have analytics so you can track just who's coming to the website in the first place. They also optimize their sites for mobile right out of the box. And you might be listening to a podcast on a mobile device right now, such as a phone or a tablet. Your website will look good on that kind of device that you know and I know everybody uses. So what are you waiting for? Let's get to it. Head to squarespace.com slash cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of that website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash cracked. Offer code cracked. Casper is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. With three mattress models, the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential, Casper mattresses are perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. Not to mention, the breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night, and it's delivered right to your door in a small, how-do-they-do-that-sized box, with free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. But the best part is you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. After all, think about it. You spent... One third of your life sleeping, or at least you ought to get some sleep. Either way, you should be comfortable. You know what else you should be? Like me, your pal Al, Schmitty the Clam, enjoying nice night's sleeps 
on Casper mattresses. They sent me one. It was very, very easy to get up the stairs, and it's a very, very small box. Then it just pops right out, and it's like, hello, it's me, the nice mattress. And I'm like, oh, it's nice to meet you. Then you try to shake its hand. There's no hand. There's no arms. What do you do? What do you do? You put it on your bed, and you have the best sleep ever. It is extremely comfortable, and I can't recommend it enough. I feel great, and you can probably hear it in my voice. Why don't you put my voice feeling into your life? Get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash cracked and using cracked at checkout. That is casper.com slash cracked. Offer code cracked for $50 off your mattress purchase. Terms and conditions apply. The last uh, column I wrote was about the subject of aliens, specifically about alien abductions. But... This is another one where it's so clearly a result of social anxieties at the time. But as you mentioned, that context is always missing. What only what lives long after the the context is the monster, which is part of what's interesting about this, because like it's fascinating that today you can make a movie about a werewolf or even a very sexy werewolf when wolf attacks are not something we're still scared of the context of like worrying that a person is turning into a wolf and and eating the children like why that would ever be a concern is long gone but all of these hundreds and, and thousands of years later many thousands of years later that still holds a place in the culture i think that aliens will be the same thing even if we never run into actual life on other planets you know, the belief in aliens itself kind of makes sense because from the early, early days of humanity, the concept of we live here and that probably means there's other people living on that mountain over there or that island over there. Like, even if we can't contact them, there would be a lot of mythology and a lot of talk about, well, like, what are they like? Are they hostile? Are they? And so you would wind up projecting onto those people all sorts of things, all of your wishes, all of your like, well, maybe those people over there, maybe they're all beautiful. Maybe they all live forever or, you know, maybe they they want to kill us. Maybe they're extremely advanced. And the moment they find out we're here, they'll kill us and take all of our cattle and, and women and gold. Like you almost are taking whatever is in your own mind and you're projecting it on the other, right? Whatever that group is over there, whose ways are different, their customs are different, their language is different. So the moment we realized that the specks in the sky were stars and that we're living on a planet and that there's probably other planets out there, it was very, very natural to say, to start thinking about, well, who lives out there? That is almost just a basic instinct. But the specific fear of being abducted by an alien into a spaceship is very recent, only goes back about like less than 60 years, and it's fascinating because it goes back to one incident. It, it happened in 1961. There was a husband and wife named of Betty and Barney Hill. Among UFO enthusiasts, these names are famous. Like, this is like me explaining what Santa Claus is. Like, but I right. realize to the rest <laughs> of you who are not part of the UFO community, this is all new. But th- this story is iconic in their, in their world. But they were a couple, both around 40 years old. They were not like UFO weirdos or anything like that. They were completely normal. Like, Barney was a worked in the post office. I think Betty was like a social worker. They had gone on 
a road trip vacation to Canada because that's the kind of people they were. That was their wild vacation as they just drove around Canada for a bit. They were coming back home to New Hampshire. They had been on the road for a very long time. They'd been drive, driving for like 18 hours and they see a light in the sky. Now that part was typical. UFO sightings go all the way back to, you know, the invention of aircraft, right? Especially around yeah. World War II. But so they see a UFO that according to their story is doing typical UFO things. It's silent, weaving erratically around the sky. It's this bright light that's kind of hard to define its shape. Then they it kind of swept down toward the car at which point their memories went hazy and they drove home and found that they had lost like two hours, two or three hours of time. They got home much later than what they thought they should have. In the days after that, after reading a book about UFOs, Betty starts recovering. I'm making air quotes with my fingers. She starts <laughs> recovering the memories of an abduction experience being taken on board the ship at the time, she described the aliens as being very short, wearing blue uniforms, and having greasy black hair. Just to butt in, like, I'm curious uh, at this time what the connotation even would have been around UFOs. Like, I, I, it seems like it would have been just purely this is an unidentified flying object and not placing any alien context on top of it. You know what I mean? That's amazing. No, no, no. This was after War of the Worlds. This was after, like, there was a rich history oh, okay. in science fiction of, of, like, alien invasion and of aliens existing, like, you know, in, invading from Mars, that sort of thing. Because, again, right. an invasion from another culture, that also is primal. Because that's been happening since the, you know, you have a tribe. The sure. idea of your village being invaded by another tribe is very real. That was an ever-present danger. So, again, the moment we see that there are stars out there. It's like, well, I bet if they're out there, they're going to invade because after all, that's what we would do. If, <laughs> you know, it's what, that's what America would do. If we discovered another, you know, if they had oil, we would come and take it. So oh, who can imagine <laughs> such a thing happening? Crazy. The whole thing that we joke about now, everything in an alien abduction, when you're taken on board the ship, where they put you on a table and they probe you and treat you like like they, it, they either do like an anal probe or they they poke you with needles. The yeah. aliens being short with big black eyes and gray skin, all of that comes from this story. Not right away. She starts journaling her dreams, and then two years later, she's doing this. Barney says. I think this is a delusion. Like he's like, I admit I saw a thing in the sky. He's like, but all your stuff about being taken on board. I think this is a flight of fancy. He didn't take it seriously at all. Two years later, they both agree to undergo hypnosis. They have not gone public with the story at all. They have not tried to profit from it. They've not tried to parlay it into a movie deal. They kept it to themselves, but Someone told them, you're still having anxiety about this. There's this new thing in hypnosis. You can go back and relive the memory. And for a lot of people who have undergone trauma, this helps them because they relive it, they face it, and then they undergo hypnosis. And I embedded the video where they recorded one of the sessions. And this is the first time Barney remembers his abduction. If he's doing this as a hoax... He's the best actor I've ever seen 
because when he's undergoing hypnosis and reliving the moment where he is taken on board the ship, because now he suddenly has a memory of this occurring. There's a moment when he sees the aliens and he starts screaming and we have this yeah. recording. We'll, we'll link it in the footnotes. Yeah. He's not an actor. Like he's, he's just a guy, but he starts crying and starts freaking out, having a physical panic reaction. That to me is very interesting because you now have a situation where in reality, what happened was like they were driving back. They were both sleep deprived, winding through a pitch black at the time, these winding mountain roads that had no lights on them. The light they saw, there's an observation tower nearby. Somebody has re has driven their exact route. And they said that light follows the exact path of the UFO as they describe it. Like because it's a winding road, it appears to move around the sky in the aftermath of it, she read books that kind of put an idea into her head and had these dreams. And then apparently she just told the story enough that it like planted it in Barney, her husband's mind inception style to where now you could, you could hypnotize him and he will relive it down to the detail and it was from his description where the creatures evolved into short, bald, gray skin, big black eyes. It is theorized that that design came from an episode of The Outer Limits, which is a low-budget Twilight Zone knockoff. It aired about two weeks before his hypnosis session. Oh, it, and he may have seen it because there were only two or three channels, so it was probably on. Yeah. He's, <laughs> he had, they had always said that he didn't, but either way, the point being... You're witnessing the birth of a myth here because today that gray alien with the big eyes, like by 1987, I think they had recorded, it's in the article, but they had recorded, I think, 300 abductions from people that swear it happens, people that can pass a polygraph test, people that can undergo hypnosis and can relive it. Most of them describing those same gray aliens with the big black eyes, the short the short little creatures and people who are UFO believers say, well, see, this is evidence that it's true because how in the world would you have hundreds and hundreds of people? And today it's thousands. Like if I can't right. find where anyone is even keeping a database anymore of UFO abductions because it's so, it's so common. And now they all see the same creature that Barney describes that he apparently saw on this low budget twilight zone knockoff. And that is now in the cultural bloodstream and it will never go away. I think a thousand years from now, people will still believe in the gray aliens and the idea of getting abducted on, on board a spaceship. And a lot of the things that he experienced that his wife experienced are things that like fear of a medical exam. His wife was not given an anal probe. He was. Well, 1961 was that was soon after they started recommending men get colonoscopies. All of these basic fears that a lot of middle-aged people have, plus the fact that I've not mentioned up till now, they were an interracial couple. Barney was black, Betty was white. They were active in the civil rights movement. The innate fear of getting abducted by someone against your will. This was 1961. Yeah. They they were living in a progressive region. Like they lived in New Hampshire for, for a reason. But this was part of the thing with like, 
anyone who says, well, they just came up with it, they just wanted attention. I'm telling you, an interracial couple in 1961, no, you did not want attention. You did not want to go nationwide, like they were both, you know, like active in the NAACP. You do not want to go nationwide with an outlandish story that would give people an excuse to discredit you, mock you, you know, because again, people did. And the story kind of leaked out against their will. What had happened was a journalist got hold of, they had given a talk to like a local UFO support group. And then someone got hold of their notes and basically went public with it and they started getting mocked. So then they went out and told there, but it was years after it happened before they finally went, it was like 1966 before they finally went public and said, yeah, this happened. They were perfectly happy to just sit on it. So everything about in terms of them doing it on purpose, doing it for money, none of that holds up. I do 100% believe that they think it happened. I think it was just a culmination of a bunch of different things from sleep deprivation to the two of them feeding each other's panic. This what's this thing in the sky and then her recovering these memories and just saying it enough. But the fact that a human memory can work this way and that we would see the same thing again in the 1980s during the satanic panic, when they were able to find children who would tell the police, Oh yes. When I went to this daycare, they took me in the back and they were all in robes, uh, and I watched them them sacrifice and eat eat an infant. You know, those kids recanted that later, but people went to jail over it. You find out that when you take a little kid and you interrogate them and you make it clear during the interrogation that when they say something outlandish, everyone perks up, that it's clear this is what the adults want, that they started to manufacture that memory in their head because this is what they want to hear. This guy is here giving me candy and saying, now tell us what happened. Now, when they took you back, what did you see? They were leading them to this conclusion. You can manufacture a memory in your head that way. You can believe that something happened to you that way. Betty Hill went to her grave like she had many more sightings of aliens as time went on. It kind of became a little bit more unhinged as time went on. But I fully believe she believed it. I believe of the hundreds and hundreds of people who say they've been abducted by UFOs and have seen, you know, Barney Hill's aliens, that they all believe it. But those creatures do not exist anywhere. (laughs) But they might as well exist just like dragons They're now in our brains somehow, and we'll never get rid of them. The method by which that happens is poorly understood. I believe we need to understand it because a lot of our culture is based on this, of like how we learn to believe in monsters and then the way it dictates how we behave. I'm so glad you bring dragons back in because, yeah, I feel like two things that have really made that alien myth spread is one that there are a lot of people like the hills who probably do believe what they're saying and then also that so many people conceive of aliens as being that thing that's called the grays like those sort of humanoid large-eyed uh large top of the head beings it's not like evidence evidence but it's the kind of thing that people are often like well why would all of these people very earnestly say aliens look exactly the same way when aliens could look like anything that that the imagination could even conceive but the same thing happens with dragons like dragons could could look like any thing in the world and they're almost always 
large reptilian, uh, sharp teeth, maybe a serpent type element. And that's something that has never existed and never will. Also, one of the monsters from my books are shadow people, just people made of shadow that have eyes that are visible. And that has been brought up that, well, these turn up in lots of horror novels. What horror novel did you get it from? And then later you have more recently, they came up with the myth of Slenderman. And Slenderman is this very tall, he's sort of in a suit, but he has like long limbs and he's basically a big black shape. The shadow figure, like the figure of pure darkness, that's brain science. That's that is an extremely common hallucination. They can actually sort of induce it in a lab setting, I think. But people who have like sleep paralysis, which is that thing where you, some of the people listening have had it, where you wake up, but your body has not woken up all the way and you can't move your limbs because you're still in that sleep mode. You know, like the the thing that keeps you from sleepwalking, that's that mechanism still in place. So it's keeping you fixed to the bed, but you're awake, but you start having hallucinations it's like the most terrifying thing that can happen to you. Yeah. But but the shadow people are a very common thing you see. And it's just due to how the brain is, is wired. It, it has to do with the way our brain identifies the shape of a person. And when it doesn't have the features there, it kind of just fills in like a black, just a vague black shape. Or at least that's the way it manifests itself. I have heard a theory that the alien grays where... They have very big eyes, but an almost no nose, and the mouth is just a tiny slit. Yeah. That when a human looks at a, a face, that that is the order that you process the face. The eyes are very important. You don't necessarily pay so much attention to the nose and the mouth. If you ask, or like a toddler, if you ask them to draw a picture of a face, it'll be like a circle with two, two big eyes, you know, and then a mouth. It, like that you are just drawn to the eyes and that's the feature that you notice most. It's why like in Disney cartoons, the characters have, or in anime, the characters have big giant eyes and usually in many cases, like a tiny, like a tiny mouth that is just, it's brain science. that when you look at a face, that's what registers with you. So when you have a hallucination of otherworldly beings, you don't have the talent to like design a really cool alien. Like you're not HR Giger. You can't right. <laughs> like, you're not making the aliens from the movie alien. That what you do is you fill in this very basic plain. Like there's no features. Like it's just plain skin. They're wearing like very plain clothes, like a jumpsuit. It's basically your brain picking the most boring design it can come up with. And it's just big blank eyes but it's something that I think can be understood, like why you would land on that as the thing you, you see. I think usually any kind of visual hallucination, if you're not just seeing something from the world or from a movie, I think usually you can, you can break down why your brain cobbles together that vision. But then there's the second layer of once that story is told, why is it so captivating to people that now, like I said, it's in the cultural bloodstream forever. We will always have alien abductions. Like, I just think that will always be a thing. And I think it just taps into because if you think about it again, as I said, like this iconic story of the alien abduction, all of these facets to it from the, the probing specifically the anal probing 
the you know being examined on a table on board a ship, the grays, it all comes from this one story. If they had sat down and intentionally wrote this, they basically wrote a science fiction classic. Yeah, right. right? If this is a story they just cobbled together, like, holy crap, you cobbled together one of the most iconic fictional scenarios in history. But I don't think that's what they did. I think you took all of the anxieties of the time, the racial anxieties, fear of technology, fear of the other, fear of invasion, all of our Cold War paranoia, and it all came together to manufacture grays that can abduct you and examine you, and that once one other person heard it, it just was just electrifying. And it's like, you know what? This happened to me and me and me. And that's why I find yeah. the story so fascinating because it's rare that we are around to see a monster be born. But by God, it happened. It happened on a particular day in, in the fall of 1961. And then it was just, it kind of, they had to piece it together over the years, over the course of her dreams, her writing down the dreams, her telling the story to him, and then the hypnosis sessions, and then the brain worked its magic. Pardon me with all these monster myths that thinks like, wouldn't science make us too smart to take in these myths? But at the same time, science is how we found out more about just those specks in the sky being stars and planets. And it sort of created new dark, scary woods, right? Like we got the werewolves out of the creepy German black forest around us and, or wherever else. And then we got aliens through the new place that we don't know enough about, the new place that is out in uh, the darkness of space. Yeah. And all we have, all we do is adapt it to the times because the new information, like the fact that you still have the emotional need, the psychological need for the monster, because they're not based in reality anyway, as long as the need is there, then the new information you have, you'll just tie it in. It's like the fact that, you know, and we'll talk about like zombies next, but, you know, zombies originally, you know, they go back forever. The idea of like a, a, a dead person coming back to life like that probably is as old as death. Right. Yeah. But the fact that like the zombies as they existed in like the nineties and later, suddenly it became a disease like 28 days later. It's like, well, they've got a virus. We did a video about this that we'll also link, but basically zombies and vampires are two versions of the same myth. that are kind of like two very different sides of the same coin. Cause there's a theory out there that using the undead to somehow stand for mindless conformity like the fear right. that people will be converted into some terrible idea or some terrible ideology and they'll just mindlessly follow it so like we in many movies kind of use zombies like a metaphor for communists that then later like day of the dead kind of used like mindless consumer because that's the one that took place in the shopping mall so it like the yeah. zombies are like mindless consumerism any any fear you have that people don't really think for themselves and that people are easily swayed by some terrible idea that it's just, you know, one bite and they're converted because they don't think for themselves. And then vampires are kind of the conservative person's fear of that thing, which is where they are. Vampires are not mindless. They're very sophisticated and wealthy 
it's like they seduce people into becoming, you know, a creature of the night. And so the theory was that there's a left and right divide where people on the left tend to think of themselves as being more sophisticated and educated and kind of look down on the masses. And so they see like a Trump rally and people in the red hats and they see zombies like these people are just mindless. They're just reciting slogans. Whereas on the right, they fear vampires. They fear that these liberal elites who have no morals, you know, they have no faith, they're godless and that their like their sophistication is what makes them godless and makes them amoral. And the, the people are like, they're out to basically seduce our young people into their godless, you know, way of life. That's all about indulgence and sitting around some mansion, uh, drinking blood. And there's this graph that I find fascinating, which basically says that when Democrats are in office, we tend to watch vampire movies. And when Republicans are in office, zombie movies make more money. Yeah. Because each time it's reflecting the cultural fear that like, like, oh my God, the zombies have taken over because there's a Republican in office and all these mindless drones have done their thing. Yeah. You never, you never see poor vampires in a movie. They're always uh, usually castle owners or very, very wealthy and, and really, really smooth operators. And then, yeah, zombies are just everybody, but in a way where none of them are particularly prominent or in charge or anything. It's not fear that we don't have like free will. It's the fear that other people don't. When, you know, 10 years ago, like zombies were a craze. Like there were tons and tons of zombie books. This is when The Walking Dead first came out. Like, and everyone loved the idea of like imagining themselves in a zombie apocalypse. And there were tons of articles on the internet. Like, what would you do in a zombie apocalypse? Like, well, no one is imagining themselves as a zombie <laughs> in the zombie apocalypse. Right. They're imagining themselves, them and their friends, as one of this few survivors who still have their faculties and their human wits about them and can still function. But the fear is that anyone else can be turned. Like if they get bitten by a zombie, they will become mindless and that you will be helpless to help them. And it gets down to that basic fear that other people aren't really people, which is almost like it's like narcissism or whatever. But in movies, like the zombie genre simply replaced the old Western genre where you could have made the walking dead 50 years ago, only it would have taken place in the old West on the frontier, right? Which is why there's no people around because it's the frontier, not because post-apocalypse. And then the random zombie attacks would have been replaced by random engine attacks, right? The Cherokee yeah. attacking, but they would be treated exactly the same way as these inhuman bloodthirsty monsters who basically are an obstacle for our heroes to have to overcome. The fact that we could so easily switch between Native Americans and zombies in our fiction and it looks exactly the same says so much that that could be an entire episode. Yeah, I remember because I think the order of me just growing up and discovering culture, like first I saw movies like Dawn of the Dead where they're all hiding out in a shopping mall from the zombies. And then it was related to me like, hey, did you know that those zombies are kind of a metaphor for a bunch of your fellow Americans who you can't even connect with? And I was like, wow, what a dark thing to put in a movie. 
And then I saw Westerns where Native Americans are an unreachable other who who just get gunned down by the heroes. And that was that was pretty hard to watch with that realization. I'm glad we've mostly moved past that. And also there are now and, and before now Westerns where they treat Native Americans like people. But we were very swift as a culture to make both of those messages that are are both pretty scary. It's it's a it's a strange idea to write off so many people like that. Yeah, and that ultimately brings us to the conclusion here, which is that the reason you'll never be rid of monsters is because we have evolved to need monsters. I don't know how you get past it. The reason when you go to write that story, whether it takes place in the Old West or in a post-apocalypse, wherever, based on like the structure of stories as we tell them, you have to have some sort of cannon fodder. And I'm talking about Lord of the Rings. You have the orcs. Um, Star Wars, you have the stormtroopers, zombies and zombie movies. In sci-fi, a lot of times it'll be like androids of some kind. In Indiana Jones, it was just, you know, the Nazis, which, you know, a lot of video games use Nazis in that capacity. Some mass of bad guys that the viewer will not feel bad about seeing die. But then you look at a lot of, like, crime movies from the 80s. You look at Robocop, you look at Death Wish, and drug dealers were treated that way. Like, just poor people selling drugs, like Robocop walks into a factory where they're making drugs and he just kills everyone and they're gunned down and there's no, like, you're not supposed to feel anything when they die other than triumph. Like, you know, Hey, we're, this is like exterminating a bunch of, of insects. And same thing with those death wish sequels where Charles Bronson's just gunning down minorities in the street because they've committed a series of, of property crimes. Not for nothing, they remade Death Wish this year. There's a, It was with Bruce Willis. Like That's still a story we're interested in. Uh, yeah, and you know the way that, like in a lot of action movies now, like the Russian mob, like in there, the Russian henchmen are, are the ones that can be, that John Wick can, can gun down. And oh, yeah. the, our format of storytelling requires that thing. That is not, when I say our, I'm not saying Hollywood. I'm saying humanities, the stories we tell, the epic poems we tell, there's got to be that group of sentient beings. Like they're sentient enough to have an agenda because they're attacking you, but they're not human somehow. Like, and it's unspoken. Like they'll never debate the morality of it. It's just understood. Like if even, even it's just, the guy's fighting his way through a bunch of skeletons. It's like, well, stop for a moment. It, you know, the skeletons are able to walk around and attack you with a sword. Do they have thoughts? Do they have an right. internal <laughs> voice? To, <laughs> you know, how conscious are they? They're able to fight you. It's like you know, the orcs in Lord of the Rings. Like, it's not their fault that they're orcs. Like, is are 100% of the orcs uh, morally bankrupt? Are there any good ones? Is your argument that, well, if they were good, they should have, like, not joined up with Sauron? But it's like, well, did they have that choice? (laughs) Like, we have a whole format of stories that we love to hear that doesn't allow you to ask that question. Because the way we've built society, from the earliest days of having a tribe or a group that survives, 
the easiest way to bind those people together, the binding agent is fear of some faceless, amoral mass out there. The other tribes, whatever it is. That is so built in and causes so much of the hate today to where like when people talk about, you know, like right now as we record this, there's a thing where there's supposedly a caravan of refugees heading for the southern border and Trump is talking about mobilizing the military to stop them. And there are people who perceive that as an invasion from monsters, some sort of unclean thing. And that yeah. is so ingrained that the only way we tend to overcome it is by declaring the people who hate them to be the real monsters. That I sympathize with the refugees by declaring all of those people in the red hats to be inhuman monsters. Yeah, the labeling's even very active in both directions. Like the last thing I saw about uh, Trump's response to that caravan was to just say that it's migrants from Central America with some Middle Easterners mixed in with no evidence at all. But he's even like, he's just like, why don't I pull from a few of the uh, racial monster myths that I rely on? Why don't I just uh, stack it high, you know? And you also have this weird thing where the weakest and most downtrodden people get portrayed as being all powerful. Yeah. Like these are the people who can totally undermine and destroy America. Like they will bring America down somehow by virtue of being poor. Like that's why <laughs> you had to have like in years past or a couple years ago, there's a whole thing with like, well, the refugees are bringing Ebola with them. It's oh, like yeah. they had to add, add some kind of danger to explain why we're afraid because if we're just afraid for no reason, then we're just bad people. So we have to change the story to make them lethal. So it cannot just be, well, there's a bunch of, there's thousands of people who are going to show up here with no, no jobs and no homes and no support. And that's, that's going to be a human rights nightmare because we, we can't necessarily care for them. It's like, no, no, no. You know, I heard that some of them are ISIS and they're, they're bringing, uh, they're bringing, they're bringing bombs. It's like they, they have to change it to make them a little bit more monstrous, to make them a little bit more dangerous because we effortlessly flip back and forth between these people are totally like impoverished and have no skills and no jobs between that and then portraying them as being utterly powerful and utterly dangerous to our entire way of life. And it's like, I don't think both of those things can be true. It's always been like that from exaggerating the influence of communists in America like, I understand that the Soviet Union had nuclear weapons. That was a danger. Mm -hmm. But the fear that communists were on the verge of taking over from within, how many offices did communists hold at their most popular? How many yeah. communists, forget about like members of, com of Congress, how many co communists mayors do we have? How many communist city council members do we have in the entire country of America? I think zero, right? It's none. Like maybe a, maybe some explicit socialists, but uh, no communists. Yeah. You've, it's got to be zero or like two or like maybe somewhere in, I don't know, Berkeley or something. Right. But yet in 
the rhetoric, they will talk like the communists are on the verge of taking over this whole thing. Like, like we have to stop, like in this, we have a midterm election coming up at the time of recording this. And that this is from the right. It's like, this is your last chance to stop the communists from overtaking, you know, people who don't believe in America, who don't believe in capitalism, who don't believe in, in our way of life. You know, it's very similar to like the war on Christmas. Like these people are so close to banning Christmas and <laughs> yeah, never mind that on September 15th, you can go to the store and they've got the Christmas trees out. Never mind that there will be Christmas music playing in the mall from November, from minutes after Halloween is over, the Christmas music will be playing at the mall. Yeah, we celebrate Christmas for like 40% of the calendar year. Yeah. (laughs) But they have to always have that threat out there that they, someone out there is they're just, they're so close to taking Christmas away. They're so close to ending capitalism because after all, I saw on Twitter, somebody posted a thing saying end capitalism. So that means we're under tremendous threat here that at any moment, right. The trillions of dollars worth of stuff that everyone buys every single day, <laughs> that's all going to come crashing down. Like the, that all of those kids out there that are on their iPhones and, and all of that, uh, in working two jobs, those kids are going to be communist at any second now. That is really important to our psychology. It's really destructive to our psychology because it just makes you, it makes it impossible to work out your issues because after all, there's no negotiating with a monster. There's no negotiating right. with the zombies. So why should we ever sit down and try to, to hash out our differences? Because, well, no, they're, they're monsters. I have no idea how to overcome that or if we ever will. Because every time we start to, the way we do it is just by changing who the monsters are. Like we just declare some other group to be the bad guys. Yeah, I know. That was particularly noticeable with the current Republicans in federal government, because before they were in government, they were like, well, Obama is manipulating everything horrifically. And then they took over all three branches of the federal government and most state governments. And they just decided there was a deep state. Uh, Oh, you know, there's just another government above us that is now the opponent, even though we run the whole thing. That's the one. Now we're still the underdogs to this horrible monster. And so do whatever we say, because we got to stop the monster. That is the perfect example of it. In a country that is still like 80% Christian, you will hear Christians talk about the the persecution and extermination of Christians is going to happen any day now. Never mind that it is next to impossible to win public office unless you are a professed Christian. Never mind that Barack Obama had to attend church and hold a Bible in his hand to show people, (laughs) I am a Christian. Like. Like, never mind the utter stranglehold, again, the fact that Christmas, that their holiday takes over a third of the year. They base their entire identity on, this is going to happen any day now. The persecution is going to happen any day now. Because that's, after all, what it says in the Bible. Because, again, when that was written, it was true. It it was (laughs) a fledgling cult. It was a a, a movement that was on the, the verge, you know, that the Roman empire had tried to stamp out before embracing it later. But it's funny that once that church amassed massive wealth, total control, 
you know, became the most popular faith, you know, in the most powerful governments, that they still are trying to play the victim card at every turn and still trying to say, well, you know, you'll get arrested for just saying the word Christmas. Now, they can't really believe that. But there's a difference between what we believe in the sense that I I'm sitting in a chair and I believe this chair exists because I'm not sitting on the floor and what you believe, because it's just the thing you need to believe to get by. And if you need to tell yourself that you're a victim, if that's what gets you out of bed in the morning, that's what you'll do. And the thing is, is that for most of us, in order to motivate ourselves to get out of bed in the morning, we need to believe we are fighting and overcoming a monster. And in order to believe that, we have to believe in monsters and probably always will. Yeah, if if there's almost something to, I don't know, prescribe to people, maybe maybe it's taking your beliefs and just giving giving them a quick mental once over as far as how much they impact people. And and then from there, take a close look at the ones that impact people. Like there's the, there's the classic Kurt Vonnegut cat's cradle thing of uh, the word is FOMA and it's a made up word, but it believe it means like harmless untruths that help you. Like those are good because they're, they're harmless and they help you. But if what you believe means you're going to like vote for oppression, uh, uh, maybe, maybe check that over again. Maybe give it a look. Folks, that is the episode for this week. My thanks to Jason Pargin for turning up one of my favorite stories in a long time and a fun way to talk about both aliens and the 30 years war in one show. We're hitting all my stuff. And speaking of my stuff, this week's Food Newts features the psychology, history, monster stories, and more that we talked about today. There's that entire Hilarious Helmet history episode about the Salem witch trials that we cited. Fun fact, did you know a lot of the condemned Salem witches were men? Yeah, you can tell that to people at your Halloween party. How about that? You'd know stuff like that if you watched Hilarious Helmet History. Also, uh, we're going to link you to an episode of Hello from the Magic Tavern that I just think is fun. If you don't know that show, Hello from the Magic Tavern is an interview podcast that's improvised and fictional and set in a fantasy realm with also Arnie, who has fallen from a Burger King in Chicago to uh, this world. And while Jason and I were talking about those those horrid-like enemies in horror, right, just a bunch of zombies or a bunch of orcs, just low-level grunts in video game speak, I thought of an episode that Hello from the Magic Tavern did where they interview a low-level dungeon skeleton named Clax. It's, it's one of my favorite comedic approaches to giving those grunts a voice and getting to know them. Turns out Clax is a nice guy. And also Clax the Skeleton is voiced by TJ Jagodowski, and I don't mean to get, like, Chicago improv community on you, but he's very, very, very good. You might know him from Sonic commercials, but also from being one of the best improvisers alive. Why don't you hear him if you want to have some fun? Also, you are about to hear Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. It is our theme music. This episode was engineered by Jordan Duffy and edited by Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media, a place I don't get to say very much. Still, my Twitter account is at Alex Schmitty. My Instagram is at Alex Schmitztagram. And I'm on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. And I'm here to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then.
Support for today's show comes from Fallout 76. Bethesda Game Studios, the award-winning creators of Skyrim and Fallout 4, welcome you to Fallout 76, the online prequel where every surviving human is a real person. Work together or not to survive. Fallout 76 will be available worldwide on Wednesday, November 14th. Pre-order now at participating retailers and play the beta Games Play Best on Xbox One. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.